0: But I, I, I really pray that today what we look at will give a solid foundation, wherever you are, for how you handle uncertainty in life, how you handle what happens in the future, where we stand with God, and how we process those sorts of things. Because it's vital that we see where God is in the story of our lives, in the story of politics, in the story of where we live right now. And as a result, I was just praying about it. I really felt the Lord lead me to speak from a passage in Isaiah. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. If not, it is going to be on the screen. Uh, if you would like a Bible, we actually have more coming as well. Teenage kids, adult Bibles for you to be able to buy. If you can't afford one, chat to us. We'll happily give you one. Um, but there's also great online options available as well. YouVersion Bible app, uh, ESV, a number of others. So Isaiah 6. Uh, We'll read in a short bit, but a bit of background. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament. Now prophet was a name given to someone who heard from God and spoke that out, and it came to pass. That's the definition of a prophet. What they say, if it's from God, has to come about. Some of those things that were spoken in the Old Testament we're waiting for, because they're not supposed to have happened yet, but others have most definitely come to pass. So an example would be, In the Old Testament, there were a number of different prophets. They spoke about how Jesus would die before um, before crucifixion was even invented yet. They spoke about where Jesus would be born. They spoke about how he would be betrayed and for how much money he would be betrayed hundreds and hundreds of years before those events ever happened. So many that scientists say the chances are one in in something, 10, 10 or 15 zeros of Jesus coming about and how that happened actually taking place. And so that's what a prophet did. That's what Isaiah did. Um, Isaiah spoke about how Jesus would die later on. But that's where uh, he comes into the story. And the passage starts by saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. That's how the passage kicks in. So I want us to look at King Uzziah for a short bit and his life to give us some background. King Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he ruled as one of the longest standing kings of the kingdom of Judah for 52 years, from approximately 790 BC to 739. And scripture says that he was actually a good king. He did everything that was right in the eyes of the Lord, at least in the start. He was wise. He commissioned skilled men. And many people believe he was the start of advanced warfare. So he did automated arrows that shot trebuchets before the name came about. That's what he built. And so he was a great uh, and powerful king. He loved the soil. He developed agriculture throughout the region. His fame spread. He was the greatest king of that time that he ruled. But sadly, pride got the better of him. Towards the end of his life, once the prophet Zechariah, who was his mentor from a young age, had died, he made some mistakes that affected greatly the trajectory of his life. He entered the temple, and he began to burn the incense, which only the priests were allowed to do. And the the incense was burned to sort of get close to God, to hear his voice. And he decided, hey, listen, I don't need these guys to do their job. I can do it on my own. I can do whatever I want to. So he entered it. He disobeyed everything that God had asked him to do. And he started to burn incense to sort of get more wisdom from God. And so 80 priests, the priests who were in charge of the temple, confronted him. And they just sort of said, actually, Isaiah, this isn't right. And you keep doing this. And we've told you many times it's not right. You're taking matters into your own hands. He became angry with them. And as he started to shout, as he started to to sort of rebuke them for confronting him as the king, who has any rights to say anything bad against the king, leprosy appeared on his face. And started to riddle itself through his body step by step. And he lived on the back of that. He lived in a separate palace and was not allowed to enter the temple of the Lord for the rest of his life. His son had to rule in his place. And so it's this incredibly sad story of so much promise and yet pride and arrogance Affecting the trajectory of his life and him not turning back to the to God in the process, and so that's a challenge for all of us in all of our lives to live humbly and to follow God. And so, the prophet Isaiah is speaking right after King Uzziah has died; he's now died, uh, and he's speaking into that. Notice what he says: "In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Uzziah died; the Lord lives." See, God is eternal. He's past, present, and future. He always was, and he always will be. Uh, Tom Cruise, I've got a picture of him up there. He was the highest earning. Did anybody like the Maverick movie or the top one? Anyone, hands up. It was great. It was a little bit uh, dramatized compared to the first, but we thought it was great. Um, He, at the moment, is the highest earning entertainer in the past year. He earned an estimated 100 million from Top Gun, whose box office sales topped a billion dollars. But Tom Cruise will one day die, but the Lord lives, the same as Isaiah. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, he's back at the top of sports earners this year uh, with his new contract, an estimated $136 million uh, for the year. But Cristiano Ronaldo, no matter how good he is at soccer, he's one day going to die, but the Lord lives on. Genesis, they just became the highest paid entertainers this year by selling much of their music rights for $230 million. Uh, Phil Collins and uh, his group Genesis. And so they made 230 million, just some of their royalty rights they sold. That's what they made this year. They will all one day die. The Lord lives. Elon Musk, the wealthiest man, people believe at present, an estimated net worth of 229 billion, according to Forbes, he one day is going to die. No matter how much he can afford plastic surgery and health supplements and all those sorts of things, he will die but Jesus lives forever. Those of you who like rugby, you would have watched uh, South Africa play New Zealand, uh, and obviously it was South Africa winning against a 14-man New Zealand, but we'll still give it to them. I thought they played very well. (laughs) Every single one of those men that played in that game, they're all gonna die. But Jesus, King Jesus, lives forever. I'll put this one up because it's relevant to our politics. Emerson Munagagwa who's now 80, I believe, will die, but Jesus lives forever. Nelson Chamisa, also there and also uh, challenging and all those sorts of things. He's gonna die, but Jesus lives and reigns supreme. And the truth is that every single one of us in this room, whether we feel far away from death or close to death, we will walk through that doorway into the next life. Jesus is eternal, he lives forever but each one of us will also die and our lives will end on this earth. King Uzziah died, Jesus lives. It's 100% certain until we hear when Jesus returns. Our lives are short, we're given to frailty, we move closer to death the moment we're born. We all die, but the Lord lives. The Lord lives. What does he go on to say next? So he says, in the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And what is God doing? He's sitting on the a throne. He's sitting on a throne. He's not stressed. He's not going, Oh my goodness, what's going to happen with Zimbabwe? There's wildfires everywhere. What's happening in the world? Economics. It's just chaos. What's going to happen? What's going to happen tomorrow? He's not racing around at all in chaos. He's sitting on the throne. He knows exactly what's happening. He's orchestrating future events. He's not stressed. He's not confused. He's seated. He's in complete control. He's in charge. And one day we will all see his mighty purpose. We might not see it all the time. We might not see it in our lives. We might not see it in heartache and tragedy, but he is in absolute control. Nothing takes him by surprise. He knows the future. He rules and reigns supreme. And you and I can rest in that. He's not in a panic. He is seated on the throne in control of all. He's seated on the throne, but he's also high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Again, this contrast. We die, he lives, he is high, we are low. Isaiah brings in this imagery of the difference between us and God. And there's a story in Scripture, in Genesis 11, where people decide they want to make a name for themselves, which many people try and do today. People go, there isn't a God. So the role for me in life is to make the greatest name for myself, to be the most successful I can, to be the most famous that I can. And that's what I'm going to devote my life to. And these people tried to do it. It happens centuries ago, and it will continue to happen. So they decided, we're going to build the biggest tower that's ever been seen. So that's what they did. And in Genesis 11, it speaks about it. It was called the Tower of Babel. And the funniest part of the story, this is what it says in Genesis 11, verse 5. They're building this tower. They say we're going to build it up to the heavens so that we can be like God. So we can be, we're going to build uh, maybe the Burj Khalifa. We're going to build bank accounts. We're going to build businesses so we can be like God. People can look to us as if we're like God. This is so interesting. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Don't you love this picture? Guy's going, we're just going to get up to him. We're going to be like him. But God has to come all the way down to their small tower that they thought was so big to meet with them, to speak with these people. God, we're going to come up to where you are. And during the work, God comes down. He is high and we are low. He is lifted up. That means magnified, greater than anyone else in all creation. Anything else we can place our value on is nothing compared to him. No bank account, no success, no family members, nothing matches up to him. And he's got this interesting phrase, the train of his robe filled the temple. I don't know if you've been at a wedding before or recently where there's been a long train. Now, that's probably one of the longest that I've seen that I managed to find um, for the photo shoot. But maybe some of you have been to one where there's a, a slight bit of a train. Has anyone been to a wedding where either the bride or the dad or somebody else trips on the train? Anybody? I have. Anybody else? Hands up. It's a really awkward moment. Nobody? Oh, one over there. Nobody else? A few of you guys. Proper awkward, eh? And everybody is sitting there going, please just get down the aisle safely, like please, and it's really awkward, and then you're not even focused on that. you just, it, it's a probably awkward place to be in. But anyway, there's something special about that long train of a rope. When uh, um, Prince William and, uh, what's his wife's name? Yes, Kate. When uh, when they sort of are getting married, or when there's coronations, there's the super long train of a robe that is there. And that's a long one. But now this is what it says. It says, the train of the robe fills the temple. So I want you to imagine this. I want you to get this in your mind. So there's a wedding happening, maybe just in this room, and it starts to come. And maybe I'm presiding over this wedding, and there's groomsmen, and there's a bridal party here. And so people start coming down here to the front, and the bride is coming, and the train is still out the door. So there's people following with, and the bride sort of stands, and and I'm just waiting. Sorry, can, can you guys keep coming through? Can you bring the train through? So they keep coming through all the way, and then eventually I have to and I say, I- I'm sorry, sorry, bridal party, can you guys move to the side and sit down? There's actually not space for you guys at the front because of this bride's train, so they bring it through, and eventually, it keeps filling up, and more people are bringing it in from down the road, and I say, sorry guys, it's great to have you at the wedding, but can all of you guys leave and stand outside because there's not enough space for you in this wedding, and so the train is filling up uh, this, this hall, and in the end, we're all standing outside. That gives you a picture when it talks about the train of God's robe fills the temple, and it's not an arrogant sense, it's giving you this picture of greatness, of otherness, that nobody else needs to be in the temple except God himself. And We want to catch the wonder of the greatness of him. That's what Isaiah was seeing, the absolute otherness of God. Not just that, it then says in verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. Now, seraphim was the collective word for seraphs, a type of angel. And these angels in the throne room, they sound pretty scary to have six wings, two eyes covering their faces, two covering their feet. um, Sorry, the wings. Um, They have different eyes. It talks about this in other places. They're a bit scary, but that's just because we're affected by what we think is normal in an earthly sense. But actually, God, the creator, can create anything that he wants and any type of animal or whichever else that he wants. Those angels are a little bit like that. They exist to serve God, and they're powerful. Do you want to know how powerful his angels are? In 2 Kings Kings 19, verse 35, and actually in history, it says that there was this army that was defeated and destroyed absolutely overnight, and and to this date, nobody really knows why or how it happened. This is what it says, 2 Kings 19, 35. That night, the angel of the Lord, one angel went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, they were all the dead bodies. So as I said, historically, Christ follow or not, people have a question mark about what happened in this military attack. One angel killed 185,000 men. That's the power of about three atom bombs. The atom bomb in its initial blast uh, in Hiroshima, they estimate killed about 60,000. And from there, it just extended out from the gases. But it's like the power of three atom bombs, one angel. And Jesus said, when they were about to, when they were arresting him, Jesus said, why did you guys come with all of this sort of your might and and your weapons when they came to arrest him? He's like, if I wanted to, I could call 12 legions of angels to defend me. But actually, I'm choosing to go to the cross. But I could call 12 legions. One can kill 185,000 people. That's the magnitude of the God that we serve. It's humbling to think of who God is. And to humble us even more, these mighty angels spend their time repeating something over and over. In Revelation, it says day and night. Right now, as we're having this church service, these angels are shouting and singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. In the Hebrew language, this is so interesting, repetition doesn't make sense. So when you repeat something in Hebrew language, if you were to say something um, like uh, that, that, holy, holy makes sense to us, but it would be the same as saying gold, gold. If something was really pure gold, you would say gold, gold, gold. So for us in English, it doesn't really make sense. But the repetition is proving that Isaiah is struggling to experience and to explain what he is seeing. And the angels, they can't really find words to declare how great God is. So they're just saying, holy, holy, holy. But on its own, holy, just the one single word is too great to describe. It's over the top. They're struggling to explain the awesomeness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth Is full of his glory. The whole earth, our bodies, everything that we see is full of his glory. That means it's the wonder of his workmanship, his creative power and precision. So let's think about this for a short moment. It says in scripture, Psalm 8 and a few other places, that he set the moon and stars in their place that he knows them one by one. So I want us to do a quick journey. I've done this before. Some of you might have seen this, but a quick journey just into the planets and stars that we see around us. So if we go to the next one. There's the picture of Earth. Some of you can see that's quite small, just in our solar system compared to many of the planets out there, going down to the smallest to the largest, Jupiter. If we go to the next slide, uh, we see the picture of Earth, which I've shown before, compared to the sun, which is just a star. And the sun is a pretty normal star. So if we go to the next slide, uh, we see a picture of an our little galaxy. We see where the sun fits inside that compared to the galaxy. And if we go to the next one, we see the sun. I just did this one so that we can see it easier and takes through some sides. So there's the sun, uh, top left, compared to another star. And now we just go into other stars. You see on the right, there's that big one, Sirius, compared to across the others. And then we see that one compared to all the others, Betelgeuse, the next one. And then going along there, we go to the largest one we know so far, Canis Majoris, uh, on the right. This gives you a picture of the grandness. And it says God threw these into space and none of these operate randomly. Our solar system, for our survival in the stars, nothing operates randomly. So scientists will say, it just came about mysteriously, randomly. But that makes no logical sense when actually everything operates to perfect precision. Absolutely perfectly. The earth, any little bit further away from the sun, we die. Any closer, we die. Any more oxygen, we die. Any less oxygen, we die. Perfectly honed for our survival. The wind that we hear right now as well. We don't see it, but it happens. That's a little bit on that side. But also, we can dive down, we can dive down small. We can look out big to the greatness of God that he just threw into space. But if the whole earth is full of his glory, we can zoom down. So when you walk out, uh, we were walking at Art Farm yesterday. When you walk along there and walk on a, a, a grass patch in a field, people say there are hundreds of organisms right where your foot steps that you'll never know about. Hundreds of organisms. It might be bugs, it might be smaller than that, it might be um, uh, like small bacteria. But we'll never know about those things that we stand on if we go small. And so the, the smallest, at least one of the smallest, if you go to the next slide, will be the cell. So there's the cell that operates uh, inside our bodies and, and everything else. And we go even smaller, we get to the nucleus uh, of our cell. Now, if you look at, um, if you look at molecules one of the smaller aspects of our cells, break those down a bit more, you get to atoms and you've got electrons surrounding that, break that down even further, you get down to the nucleus of that, break that even further, you get to protons, neutrons, and then as you split those apart, you get to gluons, which they're still researching how those work, and you get to quarks, up and down quarks. And they actually say that quarks and electrons it it can only be defined as a point. They can't actually define the weight of it. They say they think quarks are slightly heavier than electrons, but it's kind of pointless to define the weight of it because it kind of doesn't have a weight. But down to that size, they operate perfectly, absolutely perfectly. There is no randomness from the smallest that we see to the greatest that we see, and that shows the earth is full of His glory. When it says full of his glory, that word for, for glory is this word called kabod, which speaks of weight. It's a Hebrew word that talks about weight. It's a heaviness to who God is. When God comes, there's almost a weightiness in the atmosphere. And we've had this a few times at church. We've had this where we are praying or we're singing. And in a sense, it just feels like the atmosphere changes in the room. We just sense We're here, but also it doesn't just feel like it usually feels. When God comes, there's almost a weightiness in the atmosphere. And when he meets us in our hearts, we feel a difference as well. Uh, When Jesus had risen and he had come back to earth, he came and he was walking and talking with His disciples. And they didn't recognize who he was. He was the risen Jesus. And they talk and they chat and he heads off. He says, I'm going a bit further. And they stop at the village. And the one stops to the other when they work out who he is. And he says, but didn't you feel your heart burning within you when you were speaking to this person that you didn't know? When Jesus speaks, you feel a sense of him being different. Maybe for some of you have never encountered God before. Maybe you're here for the first time. Maybe when we pray at the end or as we've sung, maybe it's been that you've had goosebumps or you've shivered or you've just felt, oh, my goodness, something feels different. That's his presence. That's his glory invading your heart. Because he's a real God who's with us, and he is close. God's presence came in a cloud with the Israelites. Um, uh, we prayed, uh, just a few of us, um, for the school. Um, the board was happy with it, and, uh, and I was asked to come and just, just to pray for the school, for the ECD and the prep school and the college. Can I tell you that when we prayed, there was just this awesome sense of God's presence, of him being close. He just came in a profound way. You feel his kabod his glory. I trust you feel that today. Says verse four, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And as I was saying, I haven't been struck dead, I'm a messed up person. I've got sin in my heart. Why haven't I been struck dead by just the weight of God's glory? And that shows God's mercy. We've looked at his holiness. Now we look at his mercy. And mercy is not getting what we deserve. As I recognize the greatness of God and the fact that he was a man full of sin, and yet he was still standing in God's presence. He was like, how is this happening? And that's mercy. That's God's mercy. And look at his response. His response is, woe is me. It's a recognition that he doesn't deserve to be in the presence of God and live. And throughout Scripture, due to people's sin, they weren't able to be in the presence of God, and yet he was there. And so this is a good challenge for us is do we feel the weight of sin in our lives? Does it affect us? Do we kind of just brush it under the carpet, or do we feel that weight, that divide between our mess and God's perfection? I think sometimes we think that we're a little bit better than we are. Maybe we downplay our sin. Maybe it's racism that we just kind of think, oh, but it's just part of life in Zim. You know, it's just some things that happen to me. And so I just see people a different way. No, actually, that's sin. We should deal with it. Maybe it's vulgar jokes. Maybe it's things that we share or get forwarded. And we, we just kind of go, oh, it's, it is kind of a bit vulgar, but it's also a bit of fun. Actually, that's sin. We should deal with it. We should think about things. Maybe it's inappropriate content. Maybe it's anger. and We just say, but, but I'm just somebody who's prone to just lash out more than other people. I just get angry. I just find my hooter on the car quicker than usual. I could just wind down the window and scream and point fingers easier than usual. No, actually, that's sin as well. Deal with it. We, We have God's heart to help us in this. Maybe it's bad thoughts. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's that sense that actually the business that I built and the possessions that I have, they're actually mine. They're not really God's. I've kind of done it on my own. No, that's pride. It's actually sin. We need to deal with those sorts of things in our lives. I love the challenge for each of us. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it for the greatness of God. Do it for the magnitude of God. Do it because of who he is. We're all going to live with imperfections. We're never going to be perfect. But we can come before God and say, God, we recognize that. Would you help us in this journey? And here's the thing that's so important in it. We don't deal with these things in our life out of fear because we think somehow God is going to be angry with us. Somehow he's out there with a big stick. No, we deal with it because we're blown away by how much he loves us in spite of our sin. That's what Isaiah saw. Let's keep reading. He comes across something called the grace of God. God's holiness, God's mercy, God's grace. This is what it says, verse six. And then one of the seraphim, one of the angels, flew to me, and having in his hand, he had a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs of the altar. He touched my mouth. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. It's paid for. And the live coal from the altar in God's presence, fire represented purity, represented payment for things. Um, It represented cleansing. God um, often used fire as a picture of cleansing, of destroying impurity. And this coal is taken by one of the angels, sort of from God. It touches his lips. It touches Isaiah's lips. And he hears the words, Your guilt is gone. Your sin is paid for. And this was an Old Testament glimpse of what Jesus would do on the cross. This was a picture of what Jesus would come and do. Instead of the live coal coming off the altar, it was Jesus the Son stepping down into our world. Instead of the coal touching the lips of Isaiah, it's Jesus' blood shed on the cross for you and me. Instead of him being made perfect from that touch, we're made perfect because Jesus died and rose again for our sin. That, old, that touch from the altar would have been a short-term fix, but Jesus provides an eternal transformation in our hearts for, through his sacrifice for our sins on the cross. And so as I experienced what comes after mercy, which is called grace, getting what we don't deserve, could be summed up as God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E. Instead of wiping us out or shunning us, this perfect, powerful God does the opposite. He comes towards us. He draws close to us. God's grace is amazing. It's undeserved favor. We can't earn it. Nothing we do will live up to God's highest standard. But because of his love for us, with the people he created, he paid the ultimate price. Maybe for some of you here today, you've never heard that. You kind of thought, well, following God is just about being good. And if I'm a good, upright citizen, if I'm better than the murderer, if I'm better than the adulterer, if I'm better than others around me, that's okay. One day when I die, the big guy in the sky will go, the pass mark's kind of like 50%, and you're above the 50, so you can come and be with me in heaven. You're below the 50, you can't. That's not how it works. It works that 100% of us can't make the mark. There's no 50% pass mark. The pass mark is 100% for each of us. And so that's why God says, you're never gonna make it. So I will make it for you. I will make the pass mark for you. And so you get the pass into heaven by receiving the payment I've made, the 100% pass mark I've made. And so it's receiving a gift. It's not trying harder, but we need to receive the gift. We have to receive it. And what was Isaiah's response as we close? We're gonna take communion together as we close. This was Isaiah's response. He had seen all of those things. And this is what he says at verse eight. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And this is so interesting, is that God's giving an open call in his throne room. He's not actually speaking to Isaiah. If you notice this, this is the most interesting thing in this. He's, he's just speaking out from his throne room. Hey, will anybody go for me? Will anybody tell the story of my greatness, of my mercy, and of my grace? Who shall I send? Is anyone ready to tell others about me? And Isaiah, after seeing this, he kind of jumps in. He's like, I'll do it, God. It's this open thing. And in the story, he's like, I'll do it. Please, I want to volunteer for this task. Would you let me do this? You see, when God invades our lives, when we truly understand his mercy and his grace, we just want to serve him. It's not a difficult thing to do. It's something we love to do. It's a joy and it's a privilege. Why? Because we've recognized what he's done for us. We receive this free gift and on the back of it, we just wanna live for him. He's worth it all and true purposeful life is found only in him. And he's echoing that same call today. He's saying that out from heaven from his throne room to us this morning. He's saying, who will go for me? Who's going to go? Who's prepared to accept me and take the story of me to friends, to family, to business colleagues, to mates we meet on the golf course, to ladies that we meet at coffee shops? Who's going to go for me? Who's going to tell people the truth of who I am? And it's my prayer that for each of us would be the ones who jump and volunteer and say, that's me, God. I'm not perfect, but I'm putting my hand up and I'm saying I'm ready and I'm available. And maybe for some of you today, it's going to be the first time that you say that. Maybe some of us at different times in our lives, we've been excited for God. We said, yes, God, send me. Maybe some of you, that was 15 years ago. Maybe some of you, it was 30 years ago. Maybe some of you, it was a year ago. Maybe today, afresh, it's the time to say, send me. Send me. And maybe for some of you, for the first time, it's time to say, God, send me. I'd love us to take communion as we close. I think, are we ready? Maybe, host team, do we have communion out? We've got it. Brilliant! The host team is going to come and dish this out. Uh, if you haven't done us with it before, um, we will do that and we will explain how we take communion. But while we're here, um, if you're here for the first time and you're going, I've heard of... Oh, thank you, Sash. Sash's birthday um, on Tuesday, hey? It was on Tuesday. You see, we can give Sash a clap. And also, it's been a very, very quiet... Uh, eight days, because she lost her voice eight days ago. So for Micah, it's been very quiet um, time. But thank you, Sash, for serving with no voice. We so appreciate it. So we're going to take this together. I want to just quickly tell you about communi- uh, communion while we do this. Communion is what Jesus asked his followers to do before he went to the cross to remember what he was about to do on the cross. We've spoken about his grace, and that is what communion is all about. Jesus said, before his, uh, he died, he said to his disciples, they were having a meal, and he took some bread, and then he took some wine. And he said, these things, they may seem simple and earthly, but I want you to take these things because they represent my body that's about to get broken and whipped and nailed to a cross for you so that you can have life now, you can experience the benefits of the cross now, and you can have new bodies for all eternity in heaven. And this wine represents my blood which pays the ultimate price, the sacrifice for your sin on the cross. So we take this to remember that Jesus died and rose again. It's a time like Isaiah had to fix our eyes on King Jesus. And so if you're here and you're visiting and you don't know what communion, that's okay. You don't have to take communion um, because it's kind of pointless if you don't understand what it is. But if you're a Christ follower, and even right now in this moment, before we take communion, maybe you've suddenly gone, I believe. I believe in God. This has all made sense to me today. You can give your life to him right now as we pray. You can give your life to him, and we can take communion together. So if you haven't done this before and it's new to you, I'd love you to peel off the top little layer, which is just the little wafer which symbolizes Jesus' body broken for us. And this is what it says. Uh, This was Paul talking to his followers as we're talking here together. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, symbolizing his body being broken for us. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, Lord Jesus, we wanna thank you that you were prepared to go to the cross for us. Thank you that you were prepared to go through the most excruciating death, so that we could experience life, so that we could experience healing now, and more importantly, for all eternity. And you could fix your eyes on him afresh today, out of gratitude, out of his grace, and we just say, Jesus, thank you for being prepared to be broken, so that we can experience you and you for all eternity. We want to thank you for that, Jesus. Let's take that together. Thank you, Lord. If you've never given your life to Christ, right now in this moment, you can say, Lord Jesus, I believe. You died and you rose again for me. Please forgive me of my sin. Make me new. Make me a follower of Jesus. He'll do that in this moment, in that instant. And we can help you and serve you on that journey afterwards. And then this is what it says next. He said, in the same way, he took the cup. And after supper, he said to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, what we're saying today is that Jesus, it actually happened. It wasn't myth, it wasn't fake, it happened. You proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes again. See, in the past, in Isaiah's time, there was all these sacrifices that were made to pay the price for our sin. Sort of a one-off thing, it kept happening year after year. But Jesus did it once and for all. And so his blood, the ultimate sacrifice, it was acceptable to God It paid the price for our sin once and for all. And so, Lord Jesus, thank you for your blood shed for our sin. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you're returning one day. Thank you that because of this, we get to live with you in eternity forever and have a relationship with you now. Your powerful name we pray and we take this together. We say thank you, Jesus. Amen. I'd love us to stand as we close. We can stand. We'll pass these out as we go. I'd love us to pray, and I'm going to pray out a prayer from A.W. Tozer. So I'd love us to close our eyes um, just as we pray this. Um, I absolutely love this, and it's a great prayer for all of us as we close. And this is the prayer. I come to you today, O Lord, to give up my rights, to lay down my life, to offer my future, which is what Isaiah was doing. To give my devotion, my skills, my energies. I don't want to waste time looking at my weaknesses nor how I'm not good enough for the work. I acknowledge your choice with my life to make Jesus attractive and intelligible to those around me. I come to you today for spiritual preparation. Would you touch us, God? Put your hand upon me, anoint me with the oil of the one with good news, save me from compromise, from sin from not following you. Heal my soul from small ambitions, from living for things that don't matter. Deliver me from the itch to always be right. Save me from wasting time. I accept hard work. I ask for no easy place. Help me not to judge others who walk a smoother, easier path. Show me those things that diminish spiritual power in my soul. I want to consecrate or I want to give my days to you. Make your will And what you want for my life, Jesus, more precious than anybody or anything. Fill me with your power. And when at the end of life's journey, I see you face to face as I I was seeing, may I hear those wonderful, undeserving words. Well done, you good and faithful servant. I ask not this for myself, but for the glory of your name. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Let's be hope bringers. Let's be peacemakers. Let's set an example for Christ. If you want to sign up for men's or women's, sign up over there if you're new. We want to help you. Otherwise, we can't wait to see you next week. Meet somebody that you don't know and we look forward to seeing you later. Thanks so much.